We start with the state funeral preparations for Queen Elizabeth. King Charles today escorted the Queen's flag-draped coffin in the streets of Edinburgh. It's a solemn journey that will continue through the week leading up to the funeral. All right, I've got royal writer Patricia Treble standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report now from Global News. The Royal Standard of Scotland covering Her Majesty's oak coffin. The first sightings bringing home the reality of the Queen's death. She's been loyal, she's been dignified, she's been kind and compassionate. Ballader is just a few minutes away from Balmoral Castle. People in this town felt close to the Queen and not just because of the proximity. It's been such an incredibly sad week knowing the Queen has passed. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Patricia Treble, royal expert, royal writer. She's the royal contributor for Global News, and I'm pleased to welcome Patricia back to the show. Patricia, thank you for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. And wow, the scenes that we saw out of Scotland here the last two days, incredibly solemn, you know, the the thousands of people out on the streets as the hearse came by. Uh, What went through your mind as you watched this today? I was, I, it drew me back to the funeral of Prince Philip. And remember, it was inside the ramparts of, of Windsor Castle, um, the height of the pandemic, so it was very quiet, and you could hear the crunch of the soldiers in the gravel. And you could hear that today on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Now, the people are packed 10 deep. You can't get another person there. Um, very slowly, the cortege is going up, the coffin in the hearse, um, her four children behind her, and you can hear the footsteps. Yeah. It was silent and i'm going to say it you know talking about respect there it is and it doesn't you know whether you're a monarchist whether you're a republican it, you're respecting the woman who's done her duty for 70 years yeah it really really is amazing scenes that we're seeing and it's going to continue to unfold this week leading up to the state funeral that will be attended by dignitaries and watched by millions around the world. What will you be watching for here for the remainder of the week here and all the events that are scheduled? So um, later on today, uh, there's going to be the the royal family is going to return to St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh for a royal vigil. um, And it's assumed they will take uh, their places around her coffin. Um, Then tomorrow uh, she moves escorted by her daughter, who has been there the whole way six-hour trip from Balmoral down to Edinburgh. She was there. Um, We'll be going back to Buckingham Palace. Um, There will be more crowds and things like that. Um, But it's going to be when she lies in state at Westminster Hall, which is the ancient hall of the palaces of Westminster. And she'll be there for four days, and people will go through basically 24 hours a day. And they're warning everyone it's going to be a very long, long um, line. So be prepared, you know, a lot of battery charges for your phone. Yeah, people will wait. That's for sure. We know that. Speaking to Patricia Treble, royal contributor for Global News, the preparations for the state funeral of the Queen. Uh, Let me ask you about royal family unity in the face of the Queen passing away and Princes Harry and William seen together mm-hmm. here get your thoughts on this patricia let me hear let's uh, listen to this clip here from uh, cbs news reporter ramey in innocencio 
This is a surprise. Prince William and Harry here together, putting aside their differences. Today, they are two brothers united again in grief. But it doesn't mean the canyon between the brothers is healed, says royal author Robert Lacey. These brothers are professionals. They know they have a job to do. Um, and at the moment, the job they want to do is honor the queen. Right. So Harry and William and their spouses coming together for that walkabout greeting members of the crowd. Patricia, what did you think of that? I thought it was brilliant because it's kind of is it's a question that was always being raised because it happened on Saturday. Um, other members of the royal family had already appeared up at Balmoral um, to see flowers and to talk to people who were gathered outside the gates of, of the castle. And so the attention was switching down to, down south. And, of course, the two brothers lived very close together on the Big Windsor estate. And so it seemed natural. And reportedly, it was William. He sent a text to his brother saying, you know, he and his wife, now the Prince and Princess of Wales, were going to go out um, to see every everyone on the long walk outside of uh, Windsor Castle. Did Harry and Meghan want to come? And I thought it was funny. And they actually were together in a car. It was William driving, um, the four of them. Um, and it just sets the tone. And it means that you just forestall you forestall any speculation. Everyone is going to be dignified and proper up until the funeral. Right. And the funeral, of course, one week from today. And I understand that's been that's been declared a, a state, a national holiday in the UK. Correct. And Australia and yeah. Australia. So mm. I'm going to say we might find out later today whether it is in Canada. The, uh, the, uh, my hope is that it will be. We funerals of monarchs. This is the king. This is the Queen of Canada. Have always been a national holiday in Canada, going back to the Statute of Westminster, 1931. Um, so you'd be breaking precedent not to have a holiday. Um, and I'm going to be honest for everyone who has to get up early. Um, you know, I'm going to be up incredibly early. I mean, the West Coast. Oh, I'm sorry about the time zones for you guys. Just don't go to bed. Um, <laughs> but this is but this is going to be history, and you're yeah. going to want to watch this. Um, you know. The virtually no Canadians, 90% of Canadians have never seen this. Um, and we're going to be able to see it live. We're going to be able to see it in color, in high definition. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, what your interests are. You're going to want to watch this. So that's an interesting point that you made there about whether there should be a national holiday. And it's interesting that Australia has done that and declared that for next, um, a week from today, the day of the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth. In Canada... So you think they should do the same thing here? Well, the, the, the kind of the assumption is, I mean, if they want to keep with precedent, they would. Um, you know, on the assumption that, quite frankly, everyone's getting up really early. And so let's just, you know, give everyone one day off. Um, and it also honors, honors the, the monarch. I mean, you know, they're also doing other stuff. The House of Commons is being recalled on Thursday. So they will do commemorations in the House of Commons. For the Queen, I mean, there, there is a protocol for this. And it's not, this isn't coming out of the blue. This isn't people making this up. This is a protocol that has been very long established. We haven't seen it for 70 years, but it doesn't mean it's not there. And it doesn't mean it's not important, because I think there, there's a reason why you want to honour your head of state. Um, and you want to, you know, most of us aren't going to get to Britain. Look, even the heads of state who are going to the funeral are going to have to travel by bus. Mm. They, I mean, think about it. The The British government is warning everyone, if you're coming in for the funeral, you have to travel commercial. You can't use helicopters in Britain. You can't use private limousines. We're going to take you by bus because there's going to be such a, there's going to be such a crush of people. The security is going to be so intense. Wow. Um, so if the heads of state from around the world are coming, 
Um, I think we can get up early. Okay. Patricia, thank you very much for your time and your thoughts on this today. Appreciate it a lot. More than welcome, Mike. All right, let's keep talking about the state funeral preparations for Queen Elizabeth now. King Charles III today escorted the Queen's flag-draped coffin in the streets of Edinburgh. It's a solemn journey that will continue through the week leading up to the funeral a week from today, and it will be attended by dignitaries from around the world and watched by millions. I've got our correspondent in London, Laura Hood, standing by. First, have a listen to this here. Now, this is King Charles addressing the UK Parliament for the first time. Have a listen. While very young, Her Late Majesty pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation. This vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion. She set an example of selfless duty, which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. That's King Charles there speaking to the UK Parliament. Let's check in with Laura Hood now, editor of The Conversation UK, live in London. I'm very pleased to welcome Laura back. Hi, Laura. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. And so the solemn uh, uh, events continue here leading up to the state funeral. What is the mood like in, in the United Kingdom and in London as these events unfold here? It's a bit of a strange time um, to, to be here. On one hand, we're living in this um, stasis of a country in mourning, and at least the public-facing side of government um, is pretty much in suspension with events being cancelled um, across the weekend, especially sporting fixtures. And then on the other, you've got this breakneck speed um, of events relating to the monarchy. Um, so we're sort of struggling to kind of work out how we feel. A lot of people have been talking about how they um, are experiencing sadness in a way that they can't really understand and can't really express. So that, that's something that we're kind of going to be thinking about over the longer term, I think. What are you looking for in the days ahead here in terms of all the solemn processions and events that we're going to see? What are some of the highlights? I think what's going to be um, one of the most striking things to see is the queue that's going to form across London um, from, among the general public to witness the Queen lying in state. Um, we've been told that it could span up to six miles um, and that it will be a constantly moving queue and it will, the, the um, public will be able to view the Queen's coffin for 24 hours a day. So I think you're going to see something pretty historic unfolding there. Um, you know, often we in the UK, we're kind of quite used to seeing all kinds of um, pomp and circumstance around the royal family. But that, I think, is something that you, we really don't um, ever see. And certainly I haven't seen in my lifetime. So look did, out for that. What did, you th what did you think of Prince William and his brother, Prince Harry and their spouses coming together here, doing the walkabout with the crowd? I mean, this got so much of attention. All these reports of, oh, there's this in internal division in the family. And this was a show of solidarity here in the face of the Queen passing away. Do you think, uh, like, are people in the United Kingdom focused on that part of the story? Because it, uh, people around other parts of the world sure are. 
Uh, we, we certainly are. And, and we were hugely surprised to see it. It was completely unexpected um, the moment they got out of the car together. Um, we really, really did not see that coming at all. Um, and there had been quite a lot of speculation about what role um, what place Megan would have in the um, in the processes that, that follow. And there's a lot of um, talk about the various body languages of the of the couples um, as they were together. But yeah, it was a really important moment. And, and I think it sort of maybe led to a little bit of hope that there might be some kind of reconciliation in a time of crisis. But we'll have to see on that front. Right. It has and been then, a very important relationship. And then we have King Charles. It still sounds unusual to say that in his address to the UK Parliament. Uh, what do you think, how would you characterize this sort of public reaction to King Charles uh, taking over in the UK? So first, that address to Parliament was extremely important um, in terms of him making it very clear that he intended to follow his mother's um, view of a public service, um, an emphasis on public service and respect of the constitutional norms of the country. That, I think, is um, a, a question that many people had ahead of him um, ascending to the throne. And he has, on multiple occasions since um, in, over the past few days, taken the opportunity to reassure us that he believes in um, the service side of things and, and we shouldn't expect to see him meddling in things. So to hear him say that to Parliament was exceptionally important. Um, the other thing to say about the speech to Parliament, um, which we've also seen in multiple other appearances um, since he ascended to the throne, is the amount of emotion that he's been expressing in public. I think that's been a really big surprise and has been very positively received by the general public. To see the new king um, quite tearful at moments, mm. to talk in um, really human terms about his uh, mother and about his children, um, we kind of seen quite a new side to him, his his patience with the public, um, how much time he's been spending um, meeting the public, allowing them to shake his hand, allowing him. There's, there's footage of him sort of being kissed um, yeah. unexpectedly by a member of the public and him taking it very well. So um, okay. I, I think he has been received more warmly than perhaps we might have expected. Laura, it's always great to have you on and get your perspective in London. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you once again. Thanks, Mike. Tonight begins the journey to replace an old government that costs you more and delivers you less with a new government that puts you first, your paycheck, your retirement, your home, your country. All right, that is the voice of Pierre Polyev there now, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He won the job on Saturday. He won big, a 68% win on the first ballot, he easily wins the Conservative Party leadership. This was a nasty contest at times, mudslinging going on. Can Polyev heal the divisions in this party now? Can he defeat Justin Trudeau in an election? All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Jen Gerson. Jen is the founder of The Line, which is a, a terrific news and opinion website. And I encourage, I encourage you to check out her new column in the Globe and Mail on Polyev's big win on the weekend. Jen, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Okay, Jen, you write in the Globe and Mail today that Polyev's win, a dominant win, is the death knell of moderate conservatism in Canada. 
What, well, what, is that, be, what does that mean? I should, I should, I should warn you. I don't write that was the headline to my piece. I, I didn't write the headline. So yeah. basically, I think that that you know, with a sixty-eight percent win on the first ballot, I mean, I think we have to go back to the Harper years to find such a definitive win. Um, looking at the maps across the country, he's got support right across the country, Quebec, everywhere. It's just such a crushing and dominant win that um, you know, if you had some fantasy that there was going to be a breakout. Conser- or centrist or moderate wing here, those those hopes have been roundly and squarely dashed. There just does not appear to be an appetite for that kind of conservatism. Um, yeah. Polyev is clearly the future of the party, and, and, and obviously not only his message, but his tone really spoke to um, a significant portion of, of Canadians. I mean, they managed to dramatically increase their uh, the, the, the membership list for the Conservative Party as a whole. So, you know, the Mo's with him... The idea that you would waste your time standing against him at this point, I think, is is uh, is a little bit foolish. Yeah, and that moderate wing, I guess, if if you want to describe it that way, in the Conservative Party, it certainly is there. They tried to stop him. There was that group called Centerice Conservatives. We've had them on the show here in the past. They wanted to stop Polyev. They could not do it. This this guy had like a freight train going there. You could not stop him. What do you think that means for the party now going forward? What I think that means for the party is, uh, firstly, the increasing warfare that has existed in the party for the last several years is over. Um, there will be a, a, a consolidation of power around uh, Pierre. He clearly has control of the party as of this moment, and he is going to get at least two kicks of the can um, toward elections, if, if not more. So uh, that, I think, is going to be the first and foremost message here. Um, the second thing is that because he has such a, a, um, a clear mandate and, and you know, unity is being imposed at such a, at such a draconian level, um, he is going to, if he does win uh, an election, either minority or majority, he is going to have a, a mandate to really push forward conservative ideas and reforms, unlike what even Harper had. Like he, he is going to be able to try out ideas and policy proposals that um, I think previous conservative leaders would have considered uh, unrealistic or unpalatable to the general electorate. Now, he still has to win a general election. <laughs> we'll see how yeah. that goes. But um, uh, the, the, that, I think, is, is ha- there's a lot of possibilities that he has opened up with a, with a, with a win as, as, as considerable as this one. Yeah, and I think he has an opportunity to do something here. Uh, Trudeau has, Justin Trudeau has indicated he's going to run again, so we can look forward to here to a Paulia versus Trudeau election. That is going to be really something. And I think he has an opportunity to maybe surprise some people. Like a couple of points in his speech that stood out for me, Jens, get your thoughts. Here is one where he talks about uh, what kind of government Canadians want. And listen to the way he sort of the issue that he ends with here in this clip. This is from his victory speech. Let's have a listen and get your thoughts. Many are falling behind. And there are people in this country who are just hanging on by a thread. These are citizens of our country. We are their servants. We owe them hope. They don't need a government that sneers at them, looks down on them, calls them names. They don't need a government to run their lives. They need a government that can run a passport office. Yeah, can run, a government that can run a passport office. Like, I think when he starts to frame it along these issues that hit home for a lot of people, he has an opportunity here to connect with the Canadians. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, the passport office debacle that happened over the summer where, you know, the passport situation was wildly, wildly out of control 
I mean, the passport, passport is such a clear line because it's also such a basic responsibility of government. Like we're talking about pages on a picture. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is not yeah. a complicated social program. This is not, this is not nuanced. This is literally just pages and a picture in a book, you know, and the government struggled, struggled mightily to get that sorted um, in the middle of just absolute traffic or travel chaos, both, you know, domestically and globally. And so, you know, he, he, he's got a very fair point. Of course, the, the government's liberal response to this was, well, we'll assign a task force to look into it, which yeah. was instantly derided. Nothing ever came of the task force. As far as I, I, I know, it's never even met. Um, you know, to, to me, that, that whole passport situation just sums up one of the key failures of the liberal government, right? Just, just it's emblematic. Um, so, yes, he's going to hit back on, on very um, close to home domestic issues. You know, you don't hear from his speech big visions about, you know, Canada's place in the world or whatever. Like that, 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 that he's just focused on making, you know, your life better. You know, let's just make the right. government work right. You know, it's and it's going to be a real um, contrast with with a, a liberal government that, frankly, has gone stale that I think a lot of people have become very disillusioned by. Um, and I think that it, it's also going to maybe connect with Canadians who have gotten a little bit more um, hard-headed about Canada's place in the world, given the state that the world is actually in. What do you think about, he took a lot of criticism over some of the positions he took during the, the campaign, whether it was making Canada a cryptocurrency power in the world, or he's going to fire the bank of governor of the Bank of Canada you know, boycott the World Economic Forum. Some of these yeah. issues received a lot of a lot of criticism as as trafficking and conspiracy theories or whatever. Do you sense that that kind of framing or positioning was designed to appeal to a conservative base and win this job? And then he moves on to more, I don't know, relevant issues to most Canadians here as he goes forward to fight Trudeau in an, in an election. I certainly hope so. I mean, if, if there is an opportunity here for a, a real conservative leader to take on practical, reasonable reforms that Canada actually does need to consider, everything from uh, funding and subsidy reform to, you know, reforming uh, uh, how the income tax, work, uh, income tax system works, to getting our military, you know, back in something resembling fighting shape, fixing military procurement, uh, basic law and order reforms. I mean, we saw what happened in Saskatchewan, what happens yes. when, when, you know, 15, you know, anyway, you know, there's just, there's just, there's just so much room here for a, a level-headed, practical, conservative government to fix some problems, some real down-to-earth mm -hmm. problems. And if he lets himself get wrapped up in WBF conspiracy theory nonsense, if he lets himself get wrapped up with, you know, a lot of that kind of level of tribal, you know, I don't know if we can swear on this radio show or not, but like, you know, probably, probably best not to. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Ju ju juvenile Twitter wars, juvenile meme wars, that kind of own yeah. the libs level drama, yeah. petty juvenile stuff. He will have lost a once in a generation opportunity if he does that. And, and I really hope that for the sake of, regardless of whether or not you're conservative or whatever, I hope for the sake of the country that he can rise above that crap. Jen, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Thank you for having me.
We lose wages because we import 130,000 barrels of overseas oil, mostly from dictators, every single day, even though we have the third largest supply right here in Canada. And that is all because our government prefers dirty dictator oil to responsible Canadian energy. That was Pierre Polyev in his victory speech on Saturday. That's music to the ears of Albertans for sure, most of them. Let's go to your phone calls here. Uh, Mike on the line in Richmond. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah, it's Mike in Richmond, man. Thanks for taking yeah. my call. Sure. Look, I just wanted to make a quick uh, comment about uh, I watched the, the unveiling of, of uh, Pierre becoming leader of the Conservative Party. Um, I, I thought the speech that not only he gave, but his wife gave to introduce Pierre was absolutely amazing. It gives such hope to so many Canadians all across the country. And I can't wait for 2025. Go Pierre Polyev. All right, okay. have a good day, guys. Thanks yeah. for the, thanks for the call. Polyev did very well in British Columbia. Just ran basically ran the table in BC in the ridings here on the, with Conservative Party members voting for him. Susan in North Vancouver. Hi, Susan. What do you think? I don't. He's not going to get my vote. As far as I'm concerned, he's he's he is responsible for the country being as. Um, becoming so polar opposite and people hating other people. It's become mm. that bad that people actually hate other people. And I, I blame him for a lot of that. I also don't believe in anarchy. He supported that. And I know for a fact that he will do nothing for me as a vulnerable person, um, you know, mm. as, um, as far as the vaccines and all that, he's put, pitted people against one another. Susan, thank you for the call. Well, it's certainly one of the common criticisms of Pierre Paulia for sure. Sure. Let's check in with Michael Tobe from the National Post. Michael, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Hey, Michael, your thoughts on Paulia's big win here? Well, unlike your last caller, I'm obviously quite pleased. This is the person I endorsed very early on, a couple days actually before he decided to run. I didn't know if he was going to run, but I thought that the conditions were good for him, and I'm glad he jumped in, and I'm glad that he's won. And he won overwhelmingly, very decisively. You know, over 68% of the point system that's operated, over 70% of the popular vote, and most importantly, 330 of the 338 ridings in Canada, you know, where conservatives are located, all heavily voted for him. It's an overwhelming victory and finally brings to an end the myth and nonsense that the Conservative Party is wholly divided with all these different factions warring against one another. The party is clearly and strongly united behind Pierre Polyev's leadership, and I'm looking forward to seeing how he does. What about Jean Charest? I'm, I'm taking his main opponent here for the job, and I'm taking a look at his Twitter feed where he says, Congratulations to Pierre Polyev. You deserve a clean slate and an opportunity to unite the membership. We must end the internal mudslinging. And then, he announced he's, and then he announced he's going back to the private sector, right? Like he's out of here. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people were saying it's very similar to what they used to, or what the Conservative Party, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, who I worked for as a speechwriter, what we used to say about Michael Ignatieff, that he was just visiting. In many ways, yeah. that's what Jean Charest was doing. He was just... He's a Canadian, obviously, but he was just visiting the conservative leadership race. And when he didn't get the, the, you know, the outcome that he wanted, he left. And again, it's nothing personal against him. I've known Jean Charest for years. He's a nice guy. He's just not suitable to be the leader of the conservative party. And 
the membership has spoken very, very loudly. They did not want him. Speaking to columnist Michael Tobe about Pierre Polyev's big win on the weekend, the new Conservative leader. Let's take a couple of calls here. Steve on the line in the West End. Hi, Steve. What do you think? Hey, Mike. You know what? I th- This is something I want to put forth. I've been completely apolitical most of my life. Couldn't care less. It was sort of the same poop, different pile every time we got a new leader. And... Here's the thing. With uh, Trudeau's nonsense, I actually became quite disturbed. And you know what? I it just independently, people I know, acquaintances, had the same journey as me. They actually have joined the Conservative Party to get Trudeau out. And, and Pierre seems to be the guy. So let's give him a go. Let's let him win. And hopefully he can do that job. And if he doesn't, you know what? We'll move on. Okay, thank you for that call. Well, Michael, that's an interesting perspective on it, especially with, uh, you know, there's a perception that maybe, maybe Polyev can invigorate voters that may have stood on the sidelines in the past and maybe not even voted, get them to turn out the ballot box and vote in a general election. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. No, you're right, Mike. And I think that was one of the keys to his success. He was able to draw not just from conservative supporters, he also went to non-traditional individuals and groups and went right in them discussing issues such as affordable housing, uh, cryptocurrency, although a little less so, you know, as time has gone along, just because the market, obviously, for cryptocurrency has collapsed in recent months. But what he did was basically just talking about issues that were outside the box. And when you do something like that, which is not typical, quite frankly, for conservatives to do, and I've been involved in conservative circles more than half my life, I've never seen a campaign run quite like this. Because it's just, um, I wouldn't say necessarily traditional, but there's a, there's a playbook that a lot of conservatives use where they know where they can capture support to become leader. When you then go yeah. into a general election, the strategy changes quite considerably. But that's normal for any political party. What Pauli Ever did is he actually took a general election strategy in part, incorporated it into the leadership strategy, and look how well it works. So your caller exemplifies what may actually happen in this country frustration with Trudeau. It's sad that it's taken so long, but finally at least it's catching up after seven years, and people are just getting sick and tired of the same old, same old with an ineffective, mediocre, and quite frankly, lousy prime minister that we've had, who has undeservedly been elected three times in this country, mostly by only one-third of the country, which tells you something. Michael, thank you for your thoughts and analysis today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's discuss now some of the street crime mayhem that's become a problem in many Vancouver neighborhoods. We've talked about this a lot on the show. The break-ins, the shoplifting, the epidemic of graffiti defacing Vancouver businesses, and especially the random violent assaults, four stranger attacks a day on average in the city. Now, Vancouver is not alone in struggling with these problems. In San Francisco, authorities there facing many of the same challenges. A delegation of Vancouver police and business leaders just returned from a trip to San Francisco where they looked at the response happening there. I've got Deputy Chief Howard Chow from the Vancouver Police Department standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report on the trip to San Francisco here. This is Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. The VPD and community leaders wrapping their tour of San Francisco's Chinatown at a debrief with the city's police chief. I know we have some of the same challenges. 
who plans to send some of his members north to see what Vancouver is doing. These types of partnerships also are part of the solution, in my opinion, because nobody knows it all. And what works for you all may work for us and vice versa. Right now, this is not working for Vancouver. People are afraid to visit Chinatown due to random attacks, street disorder, and open drug use. A block away, the downtown east side remains the historic neighborhood's biggest challenge. But the hope is to build on San Francisco's vibrancy. Beautified laneways, bustling streets, graffiti removed within 48 hours, and a sense of safety. It's inspirational that we could also achieve this because it wasn't always like that down here in Chinatown. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Howard Chow, Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. Very pleased to welcome him back. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on today. Morning, Mike. Okay, let's talk about this trip to San Francisco. First of all, I want to just ask you, and I think this is important, top of mind for a lot of listeners, this was not a taxpayer-financed trip, correct? It wasn't. It was funded okay. by the Vancouver Police Foundation, and and they support programs like this that help better our communities. So they stepped out, um, like we've been hearing over the last two years, and I've been hearing it from different parts of uh, the community. It doesn't even matter if you work or live in Chinatown. Everybody um, is heartbroken of what's going on with Chinatown. So the Vancouver Police Foundation stepped up and funded this, uh, I think, uh, quite an important initiative that we had. Okay, tell me what jumped out at you during this trip to San Francisco. I know a lot of listeners may be aware of the problems that they have there, too. Like, a lot of the the troubles they see in that city are similar to our own. So uh, why did you you want to go down there and see what they're doing? Well, because it's the the largest Chinatown outside of Hong Kong. Um, It's 24 blocks. It's busy. It's vibrant. It's flourishing. Tourism um, is, flourishes down there as well. It's the third largest Chinese community in the United States. They had their issues with street disorder, violence. They had their issues with graffiti, anti-Asian hate crime. So a lot of similarities, just like what you said. For Vancouver, yeah. we have the oldest Chinatown. Uh, everybody, I mean, global and programs like yours have really kind of highlighted some of the issues down there. You can't find a, a patch of wall in Vancouver's Chinatown. Um, you're struggling to find a patch of wall that doesn't have graffiti on it. We talk about anti-Asian hate crime, an incident that just took place um, yesterday. Uh, again, you know, where a 22-year-old skip-the-dishes driver was attacked in Chinatown, right at Gore and Pender, and stabbed multiple times, doing absolutely nothing. And I know you've talked about in your program about all these assaults that we're seeing, like the security guard Chinatown security guard that was randomly assaulted, like the 87-year-old that was pepper sprayed not too long ago, like the 92-year-old that was thrown to the ground for no reason. So these are all things that have happened in the last few months. So there's barely a week that goes by that there's there's not some issue that's going on in Chinatown, and we knew that we had to fix it. Speaking of Howard Chow, he's the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department. In that news report we played howard you heard the voice there of william scott who is the chief of the san francisco police department what did you learn from them about how they're approaching these issues especially in in their very large chinatown neighborhood well i think you know everybody has to realize it's not without their warts and blemishes as well they've got problems but they've turned it around they've come 180 degrees from where they were a number of years back and they too are not not too far away from their Tenderloin district, which is very much 
which is very similar to some of the challenges with our downtown east side. But some of the takeaways that we've got there is that the safety, and we've heard this from community leaders and business leaders um, in the San Francisco Chinatown, they're saying safety and well-being has to be critical. That has to be your number one thing to address before you're going to attract tourists, before you're going to revitalize business, uh, before you're going to make residents feel safe to be on the streets. Um, another important factor is you've got to work together. And probably the third most uh, uh, resounding part for me was just that everybody needs to work together, that levels of government need to invest in Chinatown, as well as community, as well as nonprofits, as well as the police department. So I think it was important for us to go down there because, you know, every time you look at programs like this and things like that, you think that you're doing it really well, and maybe there are improvements that we can find elsewhere. So we're not working in a silo. Right. What what jumped out at you in terms of some of the things that they're doing differently there that maybe we could adopt here? Like one of the things that I heard about was the number of police officers that are visible on the street walking a beat in the neighborhood, kind of old school police work. And a lot of them are will, will speak the language of people in the in the neighborhood. Right. They'll speak Cantonese. They'll speak out. They're multilingual. Is that is that something we're doing here? We are. We we heavily invested in Chinatown ourselves and moving resources, as as I've talked about on your program probably a year and a half ago as well. Is that we move resources down there, move more beat officers down there. It's a it's a huge challenge when you're one alley away from, you know, some of the most difficult social issues that we're dealing with in this city, in this region, uh, that being this downtown east side. So. Uh, we've moved bodies down there, but I think one other key factor is that the VPD can't be the answer. Uh, it has to be the community, the business leaders, and government needs to step up and address some of these issues. Um, I know it's a complicated one because we do have what's going on next door, but uh, um, I, I think that's what's going to have to change before we see any improvements in China. You mentioned the random violent assaults that we're seeing almost pretty much on a daily basis in the city. You outlined some of the the recent ones, including as recent as yesterday. What what more can you say about that? Can you expand on that issue around the, the random assaults, the stranger attacks that we're seeing on the city? Is there any indication that that's getting better? Or is it getting worse? Your thoughts? There's not a day that goes by that I'm not reading a briefing report on, on some unprovoked assault. And each one seems more egregious than the next. Um, and, and like I taught, uh, talked to you a few minutes ago, is a 22-year-old skip the dishes driver. Yeah. Uh, somebody who's a new immigrant came, came into this country um, trying to find a better life for himself, and then he gets randomly stabbed multiple times. We arrested the individual, and this is one thing that I want to point out, is that we do, the Vancouver Police does a, a very good job in arresting uh, some of these these uh, incidents that are taking place. To the tune of about 65% of serious assaults, we're identifying and charging when we can. Um, and the challenge is, is that we need everybody to help step up because we're not going to be able to do this without the help of the community. And that means better witnesses, victims that are willing to call the police, um, and uh, people that are going to yeah. step in. In that 22-year-old, we had residents in Chinatown stepping in, trying to help uh, this individual uh, you know, deal with the injuries, really serious injuries. Okay. Phone lines are packed to Howard Chow, Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. Let's go right to your calls. James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just want to know from from the deputy chief whether or not the term mental illness now is being used as a crutch by criminals to get off for bad behavior versus the ability for you guys to actually help people that want the help. Are they just using it as a way to get out of jail free card that's acceptable now with society and your hands are tied? Howard Chow. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's a really good question, but I don't think that's the case because in our world, what we're dealing with, and we will get all sorts of people that will step up and say, um, uh, talking about those with uh, mental health issues, but that's not our world. We're talking about the serious mental illness that are untreated, and those are the ones that are coming in contact with our police officers and causing the most harm to many of the, you know, the, the residents and businesses in the area. And I think we do a, a, a pretty good job with everybody but those most serious untreated mental illness. Uh, is issues. it is it is it frustrating for you, though, to see people who are like often repeat prolific offenders who are obviously mentally ill on the street and need help? And you guys keep arresting them and over and over again, they're not getting the help they need. That's got to be frustrating. Always frustrating. And, and yeah. I hear complaints about the revolving door. And I'm telling you, it's true. Like, it's a challenge when we're, we're, our officers are dealing with uh, individuals that come into contact with, with the police five, six, seven hundred times, you know, in their history. So the system needs, needs help. And yeah. we're talking about that three, four, five percent. We're not talking about the 95 percent that are thriving community members with mental illness. And, and they are contributing thriving uh, members. It's that untreated portion that we're having problems with. Trevor on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hey, I just have a question for the D.C. Um, we're going to miss the election coming up. Uh, I've seen ABC's platform to add another 100 cops. I mean, as far as I can see, the only, the only serious party that's um, taking, any party that's taking this serious and has a definite plan of action. Now, um, I want to put the D.C. on the hot seat and say, what party do you think has the, has the best plan? And I would prefer another political action, uh, answer and kind of... Uh, Hedges bets. I want I want them to see what what party have you seen that's actually taking this serious. And when we go forward in October, we cast a well, vote. Okay, well, let's let's see if the deputy chief is going to go there. Go ahead, Howard. Yeah, no, I can't. It's a, and I'll yeah. be frank with you. It's an election issue. We're four weeks away. But what yeah. I will say is that public safety has to be one of the top issues that any party jumps into. Public safety has to be there. And when you've got neighborhoods, we're not just talking Chinatown. You're talking Yale Town, Gastown parts of Commercial Drive, uh, Granville Mall area, the neighborhoods that changed overnight over the last few years. And if we don't, if we don't do something to disrupt what's going on, it's so predictable where we'll be in the next two years. Let's go so, back to the, back to the phone lines. Pete on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Pete. Go ahead. Hi. I don't think that this is a problem that the community leaders need to step up, step up to in terms of these sort of random stranger assaults and racist random stranger assaults. I think it's fundamentally a problem of the B.C. Attorney General and the B.C. Prosecutor's catch-and-release program that the mayors were so desperate that they had to send a letter begging David Eby to actually uh, arrest these people. And so my question for you is, if someone does a random stranger assault, not like someone's got caught using cocaine or heroin or fentanyl, but random stranger assault, why on God's earth are they allowed bail? I, I understand the concept of bail, but for someone who's just randomly assaulting per someone, that person should be in jail, in custody, so they don't do it again. So 
do the police have the ability to do that? Or is okay. that, again, the Crown Prosecutor's responsibility or both? Deputy Chief. I, I'd say it's both. I say it has to be both, uh, and, and not only just the crown prosecutors, but also judges. It's got to be the criminal justice system. But this isn't something that just points towards the criminal justice system. you got to look at all uh, those other areas, such as mental health, such as uh, uh, your health authorities, uh, housing, things like that that need to be addressed. Because what we're doing right now is lacks coordination, lacks accountability. Uh, there isn't the transparency that's so much needed in our system right now because we feel that there's, there's adequate funding, adequate resources that just need somebody who's going to coordinate it all. And this is right on the heels mm. of just uh, the coroner, uh, what was it, about two months ago, talking about the 10,000 deaths in B.C. so far because of the yeah. opioid crisis. And one of the major uh, things they pointed to was the lack of coordination. So, quite frankly, tired of hearing that. We've been hearing about the need for coordination for so many years, and I think it needs everybody to get together and stop finger-pointing. Jack in Victoria. Hi, Jack. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I think the, the mess you have downtown, and we have it here in Victoria, too, is no surprise. When our society creates homelessness and, then, and puts the mentally ill on the streets, and then uh, when you have more poverty and more income inequality, and plus you've got this arrest and release program that either the provincial or federal governments have put in place, then you cannot police your way out of it. I'm sure the deputy chief would agree that this, the solutions have got to be less poverty. We've got to have homes, and, and there's got to be a place for the mentally ill to okay. go and be treated. We have one minute left. Deputy chief, go ahead. I agree with the caller. I agree that we need to get... Uh, not only homes, because all homes are is throwing a, a wall around what took place in the Oppenheimer Park or Strathcona encampments. You need homes with uh, with uh, adequate supports around around the clock. So at three in the morning, when a, a tenant is decompensating, you need somebody that can come in and help. Because if you don't, that same person is going to hit the streets and is going to cause problems. So I, I agree with the caller 100. percent Howard Chow, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate you taking the listener calls. We have lots more here we can't get to, so we'll just have to have you back. Thanks for today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye now. All right. Here we go now with our great rent control debate. Now, there's a new rent cap has just been announced in B.C. This was announced by Premier John Horgan, part of his inflation action plan protecting tenants from big rent hikes. Horgan announcing a maximum allowable rent hike well under the inflation rate. We've got a fantastic panel standing by to discuss this. Have a listen to Premier John Horgan here now making that announcement. An inflationary increase in rents would be debilitating for 1.5 million British Columbians. We're not prepared for that. We're going to continue to work with the landlords of BC to find other ways to engage with them, to assist them with costs. But this year's uh, rent increase will be limited to 2%. 2%. That's the maximum allowable rent hike, well under the inflation rate. A lot of landlords not happy about it. Some tenants think it doesn't go far enough. Okay, let's discuss this now. we got both sides of it for you. John Stavell from Reliance Properties. He's the CEO there, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. John, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Also got Sean Orr on the line. Sean is a political columnist at Scout Magazine. He's running for Vancouver City Council this fall. Sean, thank you. Thank you. Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. John, let me go to you first. You're representing the landlord's side of the equation here. 
Your thoughts on this 2% rent cap, is that fair? No, it's uh, not fair. I think it's it's ultimately going to be quite destabilizing to the maintaining the existing critical rental stock and, and even more so to encouraging um, landlords and investors to build new rental stock, which is certainly something that both our municipal and provincial governments are are very keen to engage the private sector to do. Now, now is, is that because inflation is an... Inf- impacting landlords as well like the their input your input costs as a landlord are going up as well oh of course i mean nobody's isolated from inflation we're experiencing a a increase in cost in the rental uh, rental housing business well beyond inflation in many cases property taxes utilities um maintenance labor costs have, have risen dramatically in recent years sean Orr, your thoughts well, under the residential tenancy regulation, it protects renters from operating at a deficit, so they could be granted additional rent increases if their balance sheet falls into the red. So um, I think that the that the rent cap is not enough. I think it should be 0%, uh, considering the crisis that we are, see in, in BC. We've got one in five renters in BC pay more than half of their income towards rent, and that is not sustainable. Okay, a 0% rent cap. John Stavell, what do you think of that? Well, again, it's, it's, it's short-sighted. It, 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 it sounds good. It feels good. It, it, it does help, you know, specific tenants. But ultimately, you know, over 90% of rental housing in our province is provided by the private sector. That's not going to change anytime soon. And so if, if you know, and in fact, you know, Minister E.B. And, and the Premier himself have said, that um, it's very important that increases be given in order to maintain the uh, rental business. And this whole idea that you can get um, above permitted rental increases under this special expenses category is, is something that almost no landlord has been successful doing. All the expenses have to be incurred, documented, and an application has to be made to the authorities of the tenancy branch, and then they get to decide whether any increases are given. So people aren't going to make speculative increases in these costs and they don't cover general inflation costs anyway so it, it really is going yeah. to put put you know the market behind in terms of um operating and bringing new rental stock to bear hey sean or what do you think of that argument that if you restrict landlords abilities to raise the rent like this that a lot of landlords will just throw up their hands and say look i'm getting out of this business and potentially reduce the amount of rental stock available or maybe you would discourage new investment in rental buildings and this could backfire and have the opposite effect what do you think of that argument well we know from other jurisdictions like montreal manitoba pei berlin scotland um, and even in BC from 1973 to 1984, that this is just not the case. The landlords are going to, um, and the landlord lobby is an incredibly powerful lobby, and they will do anything to squeeze profit and exploit workers out of their out of their wages. And quite frankly, housing is a human right, and getting a return on your investment is not. John, your thoughts on that? Well, look, if housing is a human right, then, then we as a society as a whole should be, should be funding any subsidies needed for tenants through, through our, our taxation system and our social safety net. We shouldn't be seeking to, um, at, one, at the same time, have the private sector, who fundamentally operates on the basis of return on investment, provide over 90% of the rental housing stock, while also trying to, to, to force those uh, private businesses to subsidize 
And where is the NDP's uh, rental rebate? Twice they promised huh. it in two different elections, and Minister Eby recently said they're working on it. So instead of doing that, which is a collective expense that we would all pay as a society to help vulnerable renters, we're just transferring subsidies and forcing private investors to subsidize tenants. And, you know, even I, I rent. I'm going to benefit from a, rent, a, a, a 2% rent cap. I'm going to benefit from vacancy control if they ever bring it in, which is ridiculous. They should, if, they, if we are targeting helping vulnerable tenants, we should do it directly from government and we should focus it on people who really need that assistance, not just across the board of this whole sector of people who rent, many who are very well paid and have great jobs. Yeah. We're debating rent control on the show. John Stavell, Sean Orr are my guests. Sean, we heard the, the term vacancy control there mentioned there. Like, can you expand on that? I know this is something that you support, right? Like right now, if a tenant moves out of a suite, the landlord can charge the next tenant, the new tenant, as, as much rent as they want. You're, you argue that the rent should be tied to the actual unit, right? So like if a, if a tenant moves out, the landlord would still not be able to raise the rent dramatically. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And this is this is kind of what is disingenuous about the Stovall's argument is that there are ways around rent control, um, and he's done it himself. He did it um, on the Berkeley Towers. He evicted seniors, put them onto the street, uh, uh, renovated the building, put a fancy Douglas Copeland mural on it. And uh, and and those people are now on the street, or they were relocated, but they were relocated at uh, like he did a sneaky thing where he relocated them at, at twenty four hundred dollars rent. Uh, so they basically got uh, 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 their old rent for about a year, and then after that, it goes up to twenty four hundred dollars. Um, so yeah, there's, well, that's a way to prevent developers from doing things like that, from or or even from buying up SROs and kicking. Uh, people onto the streets, and then complaining about homeless people in front of your building, which John has also done. Okay, well, I better get John's response to that. John, go ahead and respond to that. What do you say to that? Well, we're talking about vacancy control, right? So um, the, the provincial government, um, in, at the end of it, the final report was at the end of 2018, hired and created a provincial appointed rental housing task force. They studied this idea of vacancy control extensively. Um, they made a number of other changes, including limiting uh, uh, rent increases to just inflation, which they're they're no longer honoring anyway. But they specifically decided to not implement vacancy control, and they did this because they considered it destabilizing to the formation and creation of new rental and, and maintaining existing rental. And so what? that's that that item's been looked at by by the provincial government. And in fact, recently the city of Vancouver tried to implement vacancy control for SROs, and it was actually overturned by a senior court because these types of rent controls are not the purview of municipal government. So if Mr. Orr wants to bring in vacancy control, he should be running for provincial office, not municipal office. What, what do you say, well, what do you say to... The same thing about, sorry, you said the same thing about uh, the empty homes tax. You said we couldn't do the empty homes tax. That's provincial. That's provincial. We couldn't do that. But look at, look at what happened. We applied to, for uh, a special thing on the charter, and we got it, and now we have uh, empty homes tax. So... Um, that is something that we can do. We can lobby the, the provincial government. That is a big part of what the municipal government does. Well, lobbying isn't getting. I mean, you know, the provincial government has, has studied this item in detail and said they're not going how to many, do it. How many landlords are, are, are in the provincial government? I believe 77 MLAs are landlords. I mean, they're not going to vote against their own interests, right? I mean, this is 
this is neoliberalism at its. Oh, so core. Mr. Or you're implying that every MLA is corrupt just because they may own an apartment or no? I'm a, that's ridiculous. No, I'm implying they're, that they're, they're elected uh, to serve in the interest of the public, and that's what they do. No, I'm implying I'm implying that neo- neoliberal capitalism is corrupt and it exploits yeah. workers. Well, I mean, if we're going to descend into a debate about whether housing should be nationalized and, 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 and government should take over all housing, there's there's legions of examples of how that's failed over the decades in other countries. So, okay. like, uh, that's a waste of time. All right. Welcome back to our rent control debate. John Stavell, Sean Orr, and lots of calls in the open line. Chris in Vancouver. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah, listen, um, so our family uh, has owned properties since the 70s. My father's uh, built up his uh, equity inside the property. So the thing is, is that they don't know how much damage this is being done by doing this 2% because we sold probably 75% of our properties off because of what's going on with the government and how they're not feeling on the landlord's side. And we're just a mom and pa. So the thing is, is that all these other ones that are out there are going to do the exact same thing. And we already know some of the other families that have sold off their properties because of what, you know, is going on. And this is what we feel that the future is going to be like. So that's why we we ended our properties. Okay, Sean Orr, what do you say to him? Well, absolutely. It's a concern. Uh, the financialization of rental real estate in this country is, uh, is amping up. Nine out of ten of the Canada's largest landlords are financialized. What I mean by that, it's like you've heard of REITs or, or private equity funds. They, they swoop in and buy up um, uh, your family's uh, rental uh, properties. And that's obviously that's not, not ideal. So this is where um, we come in and we say we have the first right of refusal to buy that building from you and then turn it into uh, protected uh, uh, a below market rate rental for people. Um, so we would buy that for you at market rate. Who, who's, um, who's we? You mean the government the city, would do the it? City. Yeah, the, the government, city. the city, the city could do it. Montreal does it. Uh, lots of other uh, jurisdictions do it uh, to great success. And then you can add on to that. We buy that housing from you and then we, we return that land to the first nations who we stole it from. John, John Stavell, what do you think of that? It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, Mr. Orr, organization or the government, the government can afford to buy every single apartment building that comes up uh, at market rates and then basically give it away. You know, where is all this money coming from, Mr. Orr? All you're going to see is a massive increase in income taxes. And no, no. You're a dreamer. I mean, 95% of the... Progressive taxation and we're going to defund the from the private sector. Like, what are they, the government's going to buy, like, 95%. It, it, you know, again, we're not really talking about the 2% here or... How to, how to work the landlord um, and find a balance in the landlord-tenant private market. What we're really talking about with Mr. Orr is nationalizing housing, which is, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen in Canada. Go ahead, Sean. Well, I mean, in the places that rent control does exist, Manitoba, PEI, BC. Uh, we have rent control here, Mr. Orr. We had it all along, and we still do. Yeah, and it works. Uh, and... <laughs> It works by preventing the financialization of real estate. But what I, does that uh, even mean? The, the housing was built in the first place when it was very first built in the 1960s, 1970s, 1940s. It was built by private owners as an investment. Financialization of housing, that's nothing. It's always been a private business. 90% of the housing, okay. over 90% yeah, of the housing is owned by private business. 
Yeah, look okay. at look at financialization of housing. That's not talking about the market providing housing. I'm talking about actual uh, equity financing okay. of housing. But anyway. okay, let's sque- squeeze in another call here in the time we have. Ross in Burnaby. Hi, Ross. Go ahead. Uh, hey, uh, uh, talking about budgets and stuff like that. If the landlords can't afford to absorb a small amount, like let's say their roof needs emergency repairs, how do they afford it? Should they be budgeting better so when they have a um, they're not allowed to increase rent to whatever they want. Um, you know, they, they suddenly get offended. And, you know, I wonder, yeah, what if the roof goes? How are they budgeting? Okay. Maybe they should stop making out yeah. they, 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 they are allowed to increase rent in the case of emergency repairs. Okay. Uh, but, you, you know, we, we talked earlier about the ability for landlords to raise the rent despite this cap. But, John Stavell, you're saying that what it's difficult for landlords to do that, they've got to. Go ahead. Yeah, they have to incur the cost. Yeah. Uh, they then have to uh, make make an application. And in fact, many of the costs that we're talking about here are not do not qualify for that program if they're if they're mm. expected costs. And look, rental is just a bit. It's like any other business. You know, income minus expenses. You know, if it's not in the positive and you don't have enough money to pay your mortgage payment, then you're in trouble. And you know, we don't see. You know, I'm sure Mr. Orr is thinking about it, but we don't see him saying, "Let's force." Uh, grocery stores not to increase the cost of tomatoes when they go up, in, you know, when they go up in the winter time. Let's force um, all other types of businesses to provide their service at below market rates. It just okay. doesn't make any sense. Sean, get a short response, and then we're out of time. Sadly, go ahead. Well, um, do rental costs ever go down when when your costs go down? No, they only ever go up. Do wages match inflation? Not really. They definitely go down during COVID. Our rents went down mm-hmm. dramatically. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, uh, prove me wrong there. But um, generally across the board, Vancouver's got the highest rate uh, rental rates in the, in the country, and it's just not feasible. Okay. It's not sustainable. It's not, it doesn't make build communities, and it puts people in danger and puts people on the street. Thank you, guys, for a so good discussion. A where landlords build even less rental, and it's just going to make things worse. Th- thank, thank you, guys. Not, not true. It didn't apply to new rental. Thank you, gentlemen. I know you'd want to keep keep rumbling here, but we're out of time. I want to thank you for a good discussion.